Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. For a good century, Americans told a certain kind of immigrant story about coming, striving, and making it in a land of opportunity. And for millions of mostly European immigrants, that story held up. They became homeowners, citizens, and white. But as post-1965 immigrants have looked back on their lives, counter-narratives are emerging, especially for people of color. We'll talk with the author of a new book about his Filipino family's fortunes, and then... Omicron. We'll get an update on the latest variant making global headlines. That's all next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Family stories, especially ones that span continents and classes, are almost always complex. Albert Samaha's story runs from the Philippines to the Bay Area. His mother has gone down the QAnon rabbit hole. He's an investigative journalist. His uncle was an emerging pop star back home and a baggage handler at the airport in San Francisco. After tackling all kinds of topics, his latest book, Concepcion, is an attempt to tell his family's story as one piece of the larger tapestry of Filipino migration to the U.S. And he joins us today to talk about this book. Welcome, Albert. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah. Well, tell us about your Bay Area. Like, what's your map? I know you moved around a lot as a kid, and your family's got roots in different places. What's that look like for you? Yeah, all over. And I think it, it kind of reflects a lot of people in terms of kind of the eastward migration over the course of the 90s and 2000s. Uh, we initially moved uh, my family to San Francisco when my mom was pregnant. That's where my grandmother and my auntie, my eldest auntie, lived. Uh, and then right around the time I was born was when they moved to Vallejo uh, in the Northeast Bay. Uh, that's where I was born. Uh, we moved back to San Francisco after that and then moved down to San Mateo a couple of years later before moving to uh, Sacramento for when I was in middle school. Uh, so kind of spanning all over Northern California. Wow. And of those places, like what, what do you think really influenced your view of sort of like, what is this place that I live in? You know, interestingly, I think all that movement really opened my eyes to the world beyond my own horizon. Uh, I went to like six different schools from kindergarten to high school. Um, and I think it's, it sort of allowed me to see that kind of, there were all these other 
aspects to the world that I wasn't necessarily aware of. Um, you know, I, one school I went to, you know, was a very diverse school with a lot of Filipino, Black, Mexican, Chinese kids. Another school I'd go to was all just white kids. Another school I'd go to would be mostly Black and Mexican kids. Uh, and I sort of began to create this tapestry in my mind of, of kind of how wide um, not just California, but America was and how much I didn't know because I'd go from one school where I thought all the coolest kids I knew went to that school, then go to the next school and meet some other cool kids. And it just sort of opened my my eyes to, to kind of how, how, how diverse even just the Bay Area was. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of the seeds of what eventually and is now your job, both an investigative journalist and the inequality editor at BuzzFeed News. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think when people ask me like how I sort of first wanted to be journalist, I think a lot of it came from dropping into new schools at a young age and having to figure out for myself what the new social dynamic was, what the etiquettes were, how to sort of blend in while still getting people to like me and getting my Self, uh, in a place where where I, I would meet kids and have to, uh, you know, basically like do the same thing I do now, which is like cold call people and hope that they like me and hope that I can win the most. Um, you know, you have a really fascinating passage in the book about kind of about Vallejo. Um, you had, you know, some family there who kind of kind of started to teach you the ropes of, of growing up in Vallejo. Um, and you, you end up saying, uh, you know, this is sort of like your conclusion like many second-generation immigrants, I learned about our country from Black people. Um, what do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, Vallejo is an interesting place, right? Like, <clears throat> I think by some standards, it's the most diverse city in America. You know, in World War II, it, it, it drew uh, Filipino immigrants. It drew uh, Black migrants from the South. Uh, it drew white families from the Midwest to work at the shipping. And that sort of created this, this, this city that, that became known for having people from all over the country, all over the world, and yet, like so many other American cities, it's, it's intensely segregated. So when my family moved into Vallejo, the neighborhoods we moved into were the ones that had been, you know, basically reserved for black people. And so when I was growing up, those were sort of the, the people around me, you know, my, 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 not just my neighbors, but the, the, the heroes I grew up you know, following in, in American culture uh, were Black. The faces on my walls from Tupac, you know, Allen Iverson. Uh, I watched Spike Lee movies. Uh, the, the sort of culture that I learned uh, from Black people, from Black artists and, and, and Black um, athletes who grew up in, in these circumstances that are not in a lot of the American textbooks that, that they teach around the world in America, that was a story I learned. The, the story of, of a country rooted to its injustices, a country of redlining and of segregation and of oppression, which very much contrasted uh, from the country that my elders learned about, uh, whether they learned about it in textbooks from American designed schools in the Philippines that, that expressed uh, this notion of American exceptionalism. Um, you know, they sort of had this image based on uh, it was like tell, which is a, a story of open arms, a story of ever upward progress uh, while the America I learned about uh, was about one that that a uh, country that is still battling for its own soul. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's let's just dive in there with your mom. I mean, this I can't imagine, um, to be honest with you, writing as it, it, with as much like depth and intensity as you do uh, about your relationship with your mom. Um, maybe tell us how you grew up with her first before we get into sort of how your politics diverged. Yeah, it was a, a single-mother-only-child relationship, so we were very, 
very close, you know, attached to the hip in many ways. And, you know, we traveled a lot uh, and over the course to our, over the course of our travels, she would sort of be this, this whirling dervish of wanting to try new experiences while I'd always sort of be this conservative check mark on her when it, when it, where I'd sort of tell her, well, you know, maybe we, we, we're not going to make, we need to leave early so we can make this flight or, or maybe we don't have time to, to catch, you know, go to this next museum. Maybe we should just relax. Uh, and so we sort of developed this partnership where she would always kind of push the bounds and I would sort of try to reel her in. Uh, and we sort of played off of each other in, in, in that sense. Um, and I think with a lot of these kind of relationships where it's just one mother and one child, uh, you sort of uh, develop uh, this, this polar contrast to where I sort of develop strengths in relation to her weaknesses um, and vice versa. Uh, so we were really close um, and we talked about everything and, and a lot of my worldviews from the religion I grew up with to the kind of the basic understanding of reality that I had was all filtered through her. And when did you start to realize that things were, that you were starting to diverge from her, both, you know, in that sort of natural way of parent from child, um, but also maybe in these sort of larger, more political ways? That began uh, in the first term of the Obama administration. Um, To that point, my mom hadn't really paid too, too much attention to politics and neither had I. Uh, You know, the 08 was the first election. And uh, I was old enough to vote in. And so I got interested in learning about these candidates. Um, I, I, I threw support behind Obama. I convinced my mom to as well. Um, and things had sort of gone on as they had before, which is that we were kind of on the same side. But during that first term, as, as the Tea Party begins to emerge uh, and as more of the, 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 the right wing begins to uh, push against Obama's policies, my mom learns that uh, Obamacare uh, covers some abortions. And so she feels a bit betrayed because you know, true to her Catholic teachings, abortion was the number one um, issue uh, that, that she cared about. And when she found that the candidate we had both supported um, was, was pro-life, uh, she began to realize that, that maybe I wasn't the most trusted person in terms of, of, of where she should believe in politics. And then over the next five, six, seven years, uh, as she listened to more Fox News and, and got deeper into uh, right-wing media ecosystems, she began to echo those points more and more while I began to kind of go further on, on the other side as I began to learn more about the world and, and learn more about American history and learn more about American oppressions. So it was sort of this, this moment where both of us began to have these, these, these contrasting opposite enlightenments uh, simultaneously. Hmm. And would you... I mean, one of the things, just knowing the amount of reporting that BuzzFeed News, like your colleagues there, did on that right-wing media ecosystem, were you just like going to your friends at BuzzFeed being like, you know, my mom just said this thing to me. Are you seeing, is that out there in that, in, in you know, the fringes of the right-wing media ecosystem? <laughs> I would, I would, you know, I always felt a bit ahead of the curve. You know, I think that was one of the, the blessings, as frustrating as it would be sometimes to argue with my mom or over basic facets of reality, I did feel that I had this understanding of the world that I might not otherwise have just being in sconed in my own, you know, New York City uh, uh, bubble um, yeah. and seeing kind of what are the things that people across the country believe. I'd hear about it from my mom. And then like two, three weeks later, I'd see it written about, you know, on BuzzFeed News or, or anywhere else. Um, so, so I did feel like she sort of gave me this. And I think that's in many ways one of the reasons we've been able to maintain this very respectful, loving relationship is that, you know, our, our perspectives to each other have always been, while we may disagree, we will still always listen to each other because what she believes, half the country believes pretty much. What I believe, half the country believes pretty much. And we both still find it important to know what that other half thinks. 
Yeah, I mean, that part is so fascinating to me because you obviously have this, you know, incredibly rich relationship with your mom on an emotional level, but you're kind of able to bring the same kind of structural understanding of where she's getting her information to bear in that relationship, which seems like it makes it a little bit easier to sort of, you know, uh, sit down and, and talk and have dinner. I think so, you know, and, and I mean, it, it makes it easier just from the sense that I, there's not much sort of uncertainty on my end. I no longer have to ask this, how do you know this? It's, it's kind of just there and it's kind of clear. And it does help me knowing that, I mean, counterintuitively, so many other people believe the same thing, even though that can be a bit depressing to think about the fact that she's not just sort of some rogue actor, you know, going off on her own, but, but part of this wide, maybe even growing community of people that, that get their news sources from, from these non-credible um, outlets. Um, and, and I think it sort of helped me to understand the fact that it's not just a matter of like sending her a New York Times story disputing the fact that she claims, because I knew that, you know, the kind of the, 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 the source itself was, was, was poisoned from the root. Um, and and it, it wasn't about giving her the right information because it, because it was about kind of where that information was coming from. And, and the mm -hmm. sources that I was citing, um, she gave no credence to, just as the sources that she was citing, I gave no credence to. Did it change your uh, journalism? Like it changed the way that you wrote stories? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think, I mean, I think it went, it goes both ways, right? In, in one sense, I think my journalism changed the way I have a relationship with my mom because so much of my job over the last decade has been going into communities and talking to people whose beliefs I don't necessarily agree with. And, and I think knowing that it's one thing to go into a place, you know, to go into some, some small town in Mississippi and talk to folks who say things that I find racist it's one thing to tell yourself, oh, well, this is still someone's mother, daughter, child. I should respect them. It's another thing to know, oh, this person believes exactly what my mom believes. You know, it, mm -hmm. it gave me an, an, an empathy, I think, that, that I might not have had had I just been coming in without the knowledge of, of, of my mom's belief. And then on the other side of the token, I, I think my mom's belief allowed me to ask questions to those sources that I might not have thought to ask if I hadn't had all these conversations with my mom, where I sort of had this base of knowledge of knowing what a lot of folks already believe. We're talking with Albert Smaha about his memoir, Concepcion, An Immigrant Family's Fortunes. He's also an investigative journalist and the inequality editor for BuzzFeed News. And we want to hear your family's migration stories, particularly if it's from the Philippines to the Bay. Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Email forum at kqed.org or get in touch, Twitter and Instagram, KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Be back with more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking with Albert Samha about his memoir, Concepcion, An Immigrant Family's Fortunes. He's a journalist, uh, investigative journalist and inequality editor for BuzzFeed News. And we would love to hear from you. Tell us about your family's migration story from the Philippines to the Bay. And what, what Filipino-American stories and contributions do you feel really haven't gotten their due? Give us a call now. 
866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. can email your questions to forum at kqed.org or on Twitter and Instagram. Look us up, KQED Forum. Um, Albert, I wanted to get into this, this sort of family migration story, which is really an epic in this memoir um, of this, all of these different family members coming and, and going, returning um, to the Philippines and, and coming back to the U.S. Where, where do we center this? Would it really be on the apartment in, you know, Western edition? Is that kind of the, the, the centerpiece for you of, of this entire sort of migration epic? I think so for for a couple of reasons, right? And in one sense, it's the first property that my family ever had or moved into um, in 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 California, uh, and it also sort of represented in some ways our American dream. You know, I, I think for us, you know, living in Vallejo and San Mateo and other aspects of the Bay, San Francisco was always the place we wanted to end up, um, and and that house always represented sort of. The, this idea of we came, we started in San Francisco, and then we quickly realized it was too expensive of a city for us to live in, and so we moved elsewhere. Uh, and, and sort of this idea of always the second generation, my generation, wanting to return to San Francisco, to us always symbolized this idea of aspiring and reaching to the American life that our parents um, came here for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so to, I think, yes, yeah, I think that house is definitely kind of the central point there, kind of the, the opposite end of the spectrum to uh, our family house in Vallejo, which is which ended up being kind of the way station for all the arrivals. Yeah. How did the family decide to come over? So we were we were a, a upper middle class family in the Philippines back in the 70s and um, the 60s. Um, and, and I think growing up, I had initially assumed that they had just left because of the Ferdinand Marcos dictatorship. You know, a lot mm. of people left the country during that time because they felt the, the, the structures of the dictatorship were becoming too tight. But, but I later learned that it had predated that, that even at, 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 at their kind of peak wealth in the Philippines in the mid-60s, America was always the dreamland. Um, they had grown up going to schools designed by Americans with American teachers and American syllabuses and American textbooks, and they had grown up learning that America was the place to be that no matter how high you aspire to reach in the Philippines, there will always be another step. And that step is to reach the empire, uh, to become part of the empire, to go from being a colonized people in a colonized country to a colonist people uh, in the empire that, that kind of runs the world. Um, and, and so it had always kind of been their dreams, even before any setbacks, even before any struggles they had had in the Philippines, they had long aspired uh, to come to the exceptional nation. Yeah. And who brings them there ultimately, or who could orchestrate it? So it's, I mean, it, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a long chain of events with a bunch of dominoes falling, right? The, one, the first of my blood to come uh, was my grand-auntie Caridad, uh, who served um, for the Allied forces and the underground resistance in the Philippines, fighting the Japanese occupation. That earned her a visa and a job in San Francisco working for uh, the U.S. Army's uh, Veterans Administration's office. She lived there for about 20 years. Uh, no one else in my family can come because at this point, uh, immigration restrictions are still in place, blocking everyone from outside of Northern and Western Europe. Then in 1965, the gates open, anyone can come. And that's when my grandmother and grandfather uh, applied for the green cards, got their visas, um, and then eventually came over. So it was in the late 1970s uh, when my grandmother finally settled in, moved in, and my my, 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 my aunties and uncles began to come. And then over the the... the 70s, 80s, and 90s was kind of when the exodus happened, uh, until eventually, by the time I was born uh, in 1989, nearly all of my aunties and uncles um, were in the Bay Area. Yeah. I mean, the the member of your family that's sort of like the 
the ultimate avatar for maybe things would have been better back home is your Uncle Spanky. Can you just, where do we start with Uncle Spanky? I mean, do we start with him as a rock star back home in the Philippines? Maybe that's a good place to start. Like, how did, who was Uncle Spanky and, uh, and what was he up to in the Philippines? Yeah, he, he, was, he was a rock star. He, he was part of a band called VSD and Company, uh, which is a very famous disco band. People call it the Bee Gees of the Philippines. Um, and he, I mean, in, in the Philippines, and we see this now with folks like Manny Pacquiao, when you're a celebrity in the Philippines, that goes across the board. You know, you act, you sing, you dance, you host television shows, you host movies, uh, you star in movies. So he was doing all of the above. He was hosting a live sketch comedy show. He was uh, starring in, in, in movies. Uh, he was touring the country uh, with his band, um, kind of the full red carpet treatment, performing in Malacanang Palace uh, for the dictator, um, and kind of had everything someone in the Philippines could possibly hope for. You know, a, a big house in a compound with a bunch of maids and drivers, private school for the kids, you know, a beach house uh, on the coast, um, and, and, and sort of, and I think, you're, you know, you're right, he is sort of an avatar for this idea that I was exploring of, you know, why would, why would you leave comfortable circumstances in the homeland in order to come to an America that by the time I was born seemed to be in economic decline, seemed to have widening inequalities, seemed to be a place that wasn't welcoming um, those of us that were coming in of, of a darker skin. Um, and, and so it was always sort of, he was sort of the key to me to answering that question of, of, of why he would come. We're talking with Albert Smaha about his memoir, Concepcion and Immigrant Families' Fortunes. I'd love to hear your family's migration story, particularly if you came from the Philippines here to the San Francisco Bay Area. Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Emails forum at kqed.org. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Instagram. You can look us up, KQED Forum. So what, what was the answer that Spanky would give you? to why he gave all that up? Uh, it's for his kids. For his kids, like so many other immigrants. You know, he says that no matter what he had in the Philippines, he believed that America could give his kids more. You know, he believed that it was sort of a, a gilded cage where you could have all this wealth and success, but all it takes is one dictator who doesn't like you to, to, to take all that away, um, as happened to so many wealthy people in the Philippines during the Marcos dictatorship. You know, he was frustrated by the bribes he had to pay at customs and at the post office. He was frustrated by the fact that he had to have a bodyguard everywhere he went and that his friends thought he was a fool for not carrying a gun. So, so there was all these constraints he believed that no matter how much success he could have in the Philippines, he didn't want his kids to have to kind of go through these same constraints. And he believed that eventually, you know, I think a lot, a lot of people, you know, when we talk about the sacrifices immigrants make, you know, they don't come in naive totally, you know, like they, they know it's going to be hard. He knew it was going to be hard. He knew that it was going to be a setback. He knew he wasn't going to be as, as wealthy and famous in the States as he was in the Philippines. Um, but he was willing to put up with that sacrifice because he, he did believe that, you know, even the children of a rock star in the Philippines uh, would not have as good of a life as the children of a baggage handler um, in California. Um, and that was sort of the premise on which he based that entire sacrifice. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that this really resonated with me because of my own family's experience and, you know, just talking with my dad, I mean, I think Spanky's line, a direct quote there was, whatever successes you do in the Philippines, there's always a price to pay. And the, the, the question I feel like so much of this book explores is like, well, what is that price? And it, it struck me that like with Spanky, there was the violence and all that stuff, but there was also maybe this Deeper, like when we talk about corruption, you know, we're often talking about like bribes and things like that. But there's kind of a deeper corruption of knowing you're part of this ruling elite 
in a country with such extreme poverty as well. I mean, did you did you sense that was also part of it of just like kind of like, God, like what would happen to my soul if I, you know, I'm at my beach, you know, villa while all these other things are going on around me? That's a really good point. And I think that's absolutely true. You know, he, he was one of the people who did well during the dictatorship. You know, the, 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 the Marcos loved his music and had his band come in and play. You know, his, right. his, his family is from uh, Ilocos in the northern part of the Philippines, which is where Marcos is from. Mm. And his family had connections with the Marcos family, you know, through uh, ancestral history. So, so uh, I, I do think there is this idea of, and I think this idea actually resonates very much with me as being an American now, this idea of what is your duty when you find you are complicit with the oppressor. Totally. You know, if, if you are benefiting from that, that's great. You know, what is the point of life if not to benefit from circumstances around you? But when that blood might be on your hands and might always be on your hands, if, if that is always the cost you have to pay, is that really something that you want to pass on? Yeah. Yeah. And just what that what that does to a person to, 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 mm-hmm. to, to keep up with that. I mean, you know, I, I was curious about, you know, the, the how do you see yourself in this kind of wave of Filipino migration that occurs? Because your, your family is kind of coming over right as lots of other Filipino immigrants are also coming over. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the year I was born, Filipinos were the number, the, the second highest um, okay. diasporic um, um, arrivals uh, behind uh, behind Mexican immigrants. Um, so we came right at the peak. Yeah. And did you end up finding that that because you had this sort of growing wave, there was sort of a, a Filipino culture and a, a Filipino American culture that was unfolding around you that didn't exist for, you know, Spanky or your mom. Um, when, they, you know, when they were coming up, there weren't that as many, nearly as many Filipinos as when you were growing up. You know, it, I, I, the, the reality is that statistically that is true, but it didn't feel like it at the time. Hmm. And I think I was surprised when I found out how many Filipinos are America as I got older and like looked into the numbers and all this and that. I mean, we're the fourth largest diaspora in the U.S. today, but I think still very much underrepresented in a lot of mm-hmm. respects um, for a couple of reasons. One is that Filipino people didn't have to form as tight enclaves as folks that came from countries that didn't speak English, right? Filipinos grew up in a country that had been an American colony since the early 20th century. So they learned English. They knew the, 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 the American culture that they grew up watching. You know, they listened to Elvis and the Beatles. Well, I guess the Beatles aren't American, but they listened to Western music and Western culture um, from their childhood. So by the time Filipinos came to America, it was very easy for us to assimilate. We knew the language, we knew the culture, we knew what was expected of us. And, and I think the goal for Filipinos for maybe any people that has been colonized for 400 years, is that you know that life is better to be colonist than to be colonized. And so you strive to assimilate. So I actually think this is why there are fewer Manila towns, you know, across the country than there are, you know, Chinatowns or Little Italy's or a lot of different other ethnic enclaves, was because our aim was always to blend in. And I think the consequence of that, we sort of see today, or maybe we don't see, we, we sort of see in this absence, is that from a, whether it's just speaking about you know, Asian-American canons and, and, and media representation that, that focus more on East Asians and South Asians than on Filipinos, or just on, like, how many, you know, movie stars do you know that are Filipino? How many, um, you know, newscasts, newscasters do you see that are Filipino? Like, how many just outwardly Filipino people do you see around you? Uh, for me, at least, there was always a lot less 
than what the numbers actually reflected. Mm-hmm. Let's bring in Sarah from Hayward. Hi there. Um, thanks for, for, for taking my call. My, my comment is, is, is really just when I hear these stories, when I hear your dialogue, it's just I am so proud and I have so much love hearing about this. I love hearing about your mother and it makes me feel like stories of my own grandmother, my own mother and grandmother, and they're um, yearning to come to America. Um, I find that when I share my stories of my parents, I was born here. My, my mother and father both came here from the Philippines in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, whether I share my stories with other Filipino-Americans, um, mostly, really, Filipino-Americans, I find that I feel they, they almost downplay and kind of... Um, just like, oh, yeah, that's the typical story I hear. You know, my dad dropped out of college, joined the Navy to to come here. Mm-hmm. And then my mother uh, came here as a registered nurse. And they both met in San Francisco and got married. And when I share that story, you know, they came like many other Filipinos, uh, many other immigrants, a couple hundred dollars in their pocket, one bag of clothes. And they made this beautiful life here. And I find that when I share that story with people, it's, oh, that's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's typical. Oh, yeah, my parents did that, too. And I, I'm just, like, beaming with such pride and joy that my parents have because they're so proud, yeah. you know, of, of the life that they gave my sister and I. My dad brought over his eight other siblings, and my mom has, you know, five other siblings she brought here. And I just wonder if you've heard that as well um, from other immigrants. You needed a rock star you know, uncle, Sarah. <laughs> you need you need the rock star just to bring a little you know a little pizzazz to the story. You can do, you just borrow Spanky in your actual telling of your story. Um, I know. Uh, what do you think, Albert? Like, uh, is it almost like too common to have had um, you know a relatively successful Filipino you know immigrant experience? I mean, the, the numbers show that it, that is the standard, right? Is, is that Filipinos, in part because of our uh, capacity for assimilation and our language skills coming in are one of the most successful immigrant diasporas in America economically. Um, but I think the, the, the question, and, and I, think that, I think we all should be proud of that, and I think this is why our elders came, and I think you know, most immigrant elders I speak with will say they don't regret it. Um, but I think the question that, that, that always drew my curiosity was why we had to assimilate, why we had to immigrate in the first place. You know, the, the, it's sort of, we're basing all of this um, upward trajectory on this paradigm of things would have been worse in the Philippines. The question is why? Why did we have to leave? Why did we have to leave and experience the setbacks that so many other families don't have to experience? And I think that's kind of the heart of what, what I thought to answer in the book is that there's this history of colonization that the Philippines is, is, is one slice of a much larger pie that there's a part of. And, and the country that we came to and withstood those setbacks in America um, played a big role in the disinvestment. Yeah. Let's bring in uh, caller Edgar from San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Edgar. Hey, good morning. Thank hey, you. Good morning. A great show. Thank you. I'm inspired by everything that I heard, which is why I called in. What's your family story? So um, my family immigrated to uh, San Francisco 
um, in the 1950s. Um, my, my, um, pe- my mother's side of the family um, immigrated after my um, grandfather, who fought in World War II. Um, uh, uh, he immigrated to the United States, brought his family um, here, was stationed in Washington, made his way over to uh, San Francisco. And, uh, and um, my father um, actually met my mother on the boat from the Philippines to San Francisco. Immigrated <laughs> at the same time, you know, very uh, uh, romantic story, uh, to say the very least. Um, my father came um, as an educated person, wanted to uh, make a better life for himself um, in the United States. And he and my mother met on the boat to San Francisco. And um, he, he moved on to Los Angeles. And my, my mother uh, and her family stayed in San Francisco and they stayed in touch and uh, eventually got married. Um, so I'm, awesome. I'm a second. Yeah, yeah thank you. Um, I, I'm, um, I'm a second generation uh, Filipino uh, American. Um, I was born in the 60s. And uh, the, the uh, person who took my call asked me, uh, you know, well, why is it important for you to retain your roots and your culture? And it's important for me because I started to tell her a story about how when I'm around like Filipinos from the Philippines, they often say, you're not really Filipino. You don't sound Filipino. You don't act Filipino. You don't have the same mannerisms of you know, somebody from the Philippines. And then yet when I'm around my non-Filipino um, friends, uh, and colleagues, they'll they'll say, "Oh yeah, you're you're Filipino." They identify me as Filipino, uh, so it's uh, it's it's a it's a interesting contrast. And you know, for for me, it's important for me to stay connected with my roots, especially as a second generation um, Filipino American. Thank you so much, Edgar. Really appreciate that. We have been talking with Albert Samaha about his memoir Concepcion and immigrant families' fortunes, and as you can hear, he's inspired some incredible. Uh, storytelling from our listeners as well. Thank you so much, Albert. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Just wanted to say, we're playing you out with Uncle Spanky's band in the background. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.